There really is no adequate way to introduce the work of Jacques Derrida. The sheer enormity of his literacy, the uh, length of his career, the amount he had written, the diversity of those writings and the diversity of those voices in those writings make it really hard to make a definitive kind of characterization of Derrida as a thinker and of the sort of work that his work does. <clears throat> what I really want to try to do in this short piece is to say something rooted in his reflections on Jean-Jacques Rousseau and of grammatology, say something about Derrida's methodology, a methodology that is guided by a series of, of aesthetic and epistemological principles that try to say something about the nature of, of our of relation as such, the nature of making claims and making arguments and the impossibility of certain forms of coherence, but also the necessity of other forms of coherence. Those are sort of platitudes, but they're platitudes that guide for me uh, an understanding of the work of deconstruction and an understanding of the kind of work that Derrida is engaged in and is trying to draw us in as to do as readers and I think practitioners. I think above all, deconstruction is a form of practice. It's a theoretical endeavor, of course, but it is textual and at times also political practice. So <clears throat> if we're thinking about it as practice, I think that that directs us towards a couple of uh, approaches or a couple of, of framings of his work, right? One is in terms of the kinds of values that guide it. The other is the forms of knowledge that it seeks to both extract from our experience, from our relationship to the world, from our relationship to texts and ideas, but also the way that extraction of a certain kind of set of ideas uh, is always undone by the work itself. And it's exactly that, the sense of the work being undone by the work itself, that makes deconstructive practice and uh, deconstructive, uh, uh, the theory of deconstruction, Derrida's contribution to critical theory, so difficult to characterize in positive terms. I say in positive terms not because for Derrida uh, everything is negation. It's quite the opposite, really. Um, well, not the opposite, but, but you could never make a claim that, that there's a sort of negativity that is at work in deconstruction uh, that somehow summarizes it or captures its methodology, just as one couldn't say the same about a sort of positive result, a, a, a series of claims or statements that we can take away and say these are sort of deconstructive beliefs or values. At the same time, deconstruction and Derrida's uh, methodology, I think, is deep down, and some, this is something we discover, I think, later in his work in the 90s and, and 2000, uh, early 2000s. <clears throat> I think what we learn from his later work is that he's animated by, uh, by a cluster of, of very deep values that I don't want to say are behind deconstructive practice, in the sense that he's just using the practice in the name of these values, but rather that deconstructive practice unearths a certain set of values or, or always comes back to a certain set of values. 
What I mean by those values, and this is where I want to root his work in two somewhat anecdotal aspects of his life. Um, one, his birthplace, and the other, the events of May 1968. Now, I want to root them in this not, not as a sort of cause-effect, but rather the way I think these aspects of his own biography are, um, are part of the, the, the milieu of deconstruction, the milieu of Derridian thinking, that, they don't that it doesn't come from nowhere. It's not simply an innovation of genius, but I think also a reflection on two really important moments. In terms of, of biography, Derrida is born in Algeria and is in some ways Algerian. And he, you know, talks about himself in some later autobiographical work as African and what that means to think of himself as an African is, as it always is the case with Derrida, no simple statement. He's not making a claim to roots or, or a permanent identity that's rooted in some fantasy about what the continent means. Rather, that moment of claiming that he is an African, I think the phrasing is the African that I am, is something that also undoes itself, and it undoes itself precisely because of the terms of his own membership in Africa, right? As North African in Algeria, born in Algeria, but as a Pied Noir, right? As a family that <clears throat> had relocated to Algeria from Europe, right? From France. And so that relationship is tenuous and it's complicated and each aspect of its opposite stains the other that his Africanness is stained by or contaminated by his Europeanness, and his Europeanness is stained by or contaminated with his Africanness. And that sense of a, of a mutual contamination, and a mutual contamination that doesn't disable one or the other side of a relation, but rather is a characteristic of relation itself, is utterly crucial here. It's utterly crucial because one of the things that's important about Derrida is that he's not taking sides in these moments of contamination, right, or stain, because he has no interest in purity. An anti-purity methodology, an anti-purity uh, approach to texts and to the world of ideas is at bottom uh, the value system or the value structure of deconstruction. I'll just say, and this is more of a teaser than anything else, is that this is why we shouldn't have been surprised when Derrida later in, late in his life identifies deconstruction as an anti-colonial practice. Colonialism's obsession with purity, and I think also elements of post-colonial theory and its obsessions with purity, especially in the, the mid-century um, that's exactly what deconstruction is working against. And that sense of a, of a contamination or a, a, a sense of, of the stain that comes not as a result of relation, but as what relation itself means, is exactly what the, the work of colonialism and anti-colonialism and I've, his own, I think, 
practice or his own evocation of what we would later call decolonial practice, that it's about moving away from centers and peripheries. It's moving away from purities and impurities and thinking about contamination as a condition of, of, of being itself insofar as we can even use that word being. But that being itself is, is this mixture that is irreversible, right? It's, it's a mixture that is primordial. It is a mixture, it is a stain, it is a contamination from which we cannot extract ourselves. And Derrida will always remain suspicious and deeply critical of all those moments of wanting to extract oneself from the impure, from mixture. That extraction from impurity and mixture is the colonial gesture. That movement away from from contamination and mixture is what wants to separate, to you know, evoke the text of grammatology, to try to separate or extract oneself uh, in the name of speech away from writing. And the way those contaminate each other is so critical in the origin of language discussion of grammatology. There's also May 1968, which is a is in some ways to you know me bringing up an issue that's way too big to talk about in a short little podcasted process piece. But the you know the text that we read from grammatology comes out that same year, 1967, as speech and phenomena or voice and phenomena. And um, God, what what is the name of that other text? Um, <laughs> But uh, grammatology, uh, speech and phenomena, and um, not margins of philosophy, uh, but writing indifference. That's the other text. Sorry about that. This is, uh, uh, yeah, how badly do we all need spring break right about now? But those texts come out in 1967, which, you know, is a year before May 1968. But there's a percolation, right, a, a cultural political moment that is culminated in, in 1968 that I think Derrida's work is a part of. And it's a part of this moment where um, there's a sense of closure to something about modernity, closure about the modern state, a sort of closure, an end of the French state that in May 1968, right, with, with riots and protests and strikes, really the French state seemed to be at this moment of closure, right? But that every closure is also the, an opening, right? That every end is, is uh, something new. And that's, that co-implication, right, of closure and opening, that co-implication of an end and the new, is I think part of what captures Derrida's philosophical or theoretical imagination in that moment for him to be able to say in, in some really deep way that maybe this is a feature of, of, of the world, right? That, that closure and opening are always co-constitutive. That closure and opening, uh, you know, that, that, that the end and new possibility are always co-constitutive and that there is never one or the other, 
right? That they're always entangled and intertwined in ways that make them inseparable. This really plays out in speech and phenomena's uh, central chapter and one of uh, one of deconstruction or Derrida's uh, key terms, difference. And that sense of difference, as we talked about in our, in our in our conversation, has to do with all of these cognates of of deferral, of distance, of delay, and this sense of a relationship of time that is also a relationship of space. That time is spaced out, and space is structured by time. And it's a deeply theoretical claim, but it's a deeply theoretical claim that as a deeply theoretical claim is supposed to haunt or, or, or foreground or background or structure, however you want to say, put it, every single reading that he does. So that when he goes to Rousseau in Of Grammatology and wants to work through this, this origin of language story and all the autobiographical pieces and there's lots of, of strange and sort of salacious kind of evocations. But the deep theoretical concern with Rousseau is that Rousseau, in trying to trace the origin of language, keeps running up against uh, what Derrida calls in that, that section we read uh, a supplement, right? A supplement to the origin. But the supplement and the origin lie at the very same place. There is no beyond the supplement that is the real origin. And there is no origin without supplement. And that supplement of writing to speech, right? In other words, the finite dimension of what might be understood to be the enduring or uncorrupted character of language in its moment of origin, that, 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 intersection and intertwining, right? And I call it intertwining, but that, that itself is not a very good um, characterization because intertwining still imagines some distance and maybe you could disentangle. But this in sense of, of, of intertwining and entanglement is, is of utter and complete inseparability, right? And what that does is actually work as this enormously destructive force the, you know, across texts to show that in every reading Derrida does, we see his reading of Rousseau, we could have looked at his reading of Husserl in, um, in uh, Speech and Phenomena, his readings of Foucault, of, um, uh, of Emmanuel Levinas in Writing Indifference, among many, many others, Heidegger, Aristotle. Uh, all these readings, what he's always looking for is what is the positive argument of the text? What is the argument of the text? What is the text trying to tell us? What is it trying to establish? And then Derrida is going to show us how in that establishing of uh, establishment sort of aim of a text, right, to make an argument, to make a claim, to arrive at a story of origin is always haunted by and shadowed by as a sort of halo that won't leave it, right, and is necessary for that argument to work, is its supplement. But the supplement, again, 
is not just simply a companion piece to the origin story or the argument or the claim. The supplement is dangerous, as he says in the, the, the piece on Rousseau. The supplement is dangerous because the supplement is what it, because the origin story of the text needs the supplement, but the supplement is not the same as the origin. It's that the very thing itself, the text is arguing, needs what it cannot handle, what it cannot account for. And when it cannot account for that, the supplement ends up being this contamination of the origin story, right? Because it doubles that relationship between uh, doubles that relationship between the origin and its itself, right? That is what it needs, the supplement and the origin. That doubling right there tells you that the origin is never a true story of origin. It needs its supplement, which is to locate itself in a relation in relation to its other. And if it has this relationship to its other at its very foundational structure, right, that the text's argument needs exactly what it says it doesn't need, right, it's dependent upon the very thing it wants to exclude, that means that the text is not dismantled by Derrida. The text, rather, is dismantled by the text itself. And this is where, and we talked about this a little bit in class, there's this complex question about the nature of Derrida's work. Is it a transcendental method, right? In other words, does it have an, a meta-argument that it then applies to every single text and says, the condition for the possibility of this text, we already know, this transcendental structure of difference, of the supplement, and then you just apply it to the text? Or is Derrida's method parasitic. That is, it lives from the text. It doesn't import anything to the text. It simply offers a close reading with a suspicious eye. That suspicious eye is like all origin stories ultimately unravel. We're suspicious about that. Now let's trace this origin story, the origin of language, right? The origin of knowledge, the origin of the self, and so forth. If we're seeking the origin of language, let's follow Rousseau. This is the parasitic method. Let's just do that close reading and see through our suspicious framing of it and suspicious approach to it, how the origin actually ends up undoing itself, how it actually ends up being dependent on its supplement. And this plays out across so many readings. And again, to talk about how... Um, you know, to talk about Derrida is to talk about all the people he's read. Now, that for me is where the parasitic characterization of his work is so important. Because if you were to ask me, well, what is Derrida's thought, right? As I said at the beginning, it's almost impossible to actually introduce his thought because you have to introduce his thought through his readings of particular figures. But through those readings of particular figures across time, Right? We see these iterations or adumbrations of certain structures that we can then say he's discovering something in each of these, these readings right? that we can call deconstruction. Right? But we call it deconstruction not, this is the nuance I think, we call, call it deconstruction not because it has a set of principles that it's committed to, 
but rather we call it deconstruction because through a certain readerly or interpretive practice, we keep finding this structure of the supplement. And that structure of the supplement is there to, to contaminate, obscure, and disturb any stories of origin. Any story that says this is the primordial structure of a thing, right? Language, alterity, knowledge, whatever it is, we will find the supplement at the origin. And when we find the supplement at the origin, it's going to be different no matter who we're reading, right? If we're reading Freud, if we're reading Plato, if we're reading Aristotle, if we're reading Heidegger, through a deconstructive method, right, deconstructive readerly practice, we will find supplements. But those supplements aren't pre-named, right? They're not the same supplement as not in each text. But it turns out that stories of origin always have supplements. And those supplements contaminate, they stain, and they ultimately unravel origin stories. I will say, you know, one of my favorite pieces of his, which we did not read, but um, I just don't think it's a great introduction to his to to his thinking. I think the grammatology selection is 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 much more direct. But in his uh, essay, Violence and Metaphysics, which is in the Writing and Difference volume, for, also from 1967, he gives an interpretation of Emmanuel Levinas, who we'll be reading in in another month or so, where he's looking at Levinas's argument that the other by which Levinas means the other person, the face of the other. This is this trope that, that, that you know, Levinas's work is about from the very beginning. The alterity or, or otherness of the other person, Levinas says, is absolute. But Derrida goes through, and this is very meticulous, so my, my summary here is not, uh, uh, can't do justice to the complexity of the reading, but Derrida wants to show that in, in Levinas trying to make an argument that the other is this absolute alterity, this absolute difference, he actually ends up having to evoke at key points in that argument a sameness about the other, right? That the other has a face. And so the other's face is exactly what compels me, but the, every other has a face. So their singularity is also caught up with their generality or their universality as a face, as a person, as a body, all these different things across the essay. So the absolute difference that Levinas is arguing for ends up being intertwined, caught up with, stained, contaminated by its opposite, right? That decisive supplement, that dangerous supplement of sameness. And you can't have sameness and absolute difference at the same time, and yet you do. We could reverse that, as Derrida does in Speech and Phenomena, where Edmund Husserl is trying to argue for the absolute self-identification of, of the speaking subject, what we called, we talked about in class as auto-affection, speaking to oneself. But Derrida goes into there and says, you know, in this moment of absolute identity, Husserl discovers not just identity, but the decisive supplement of an absolute difference, that there's an irreducible difference between the, the, me speaking to myself, because it's me and myself, but there's also the sameness of me speaking to myself. There is auto-affection and hetero-affection at the same time, right? An affection of sameness and an affection of difference. We can just, again, 
Derrida reads for 40 years like this. And the results to me are so interesting because he ends up, I think, really understanding, um, and this is where I'll sort of conclude in an evocative way. He ends up, I think, really coming to understand how things, uh, questions like democracy are questions of, of difference, are questions of, of decisive supplement, right? That, that to preserve democracy is often to suspend democracy. But when you suspend democracy, it's in order for the idea of, the, of democracy to come back and interrupt its suspension. And that sense of like a haunting and a, and a constant interruption ends up being for him, I think, the ultimate value of deconstruction, which is an anti-authoritarian impulse, an anti-authoritarian value system that is has its eye always on the authoritarianism of an argument for origins or an argument for ultimate values, right? An argument for, you know, um, you know that democ liberal democracy is the end of history. And Derrida is going to say, you know, when you have that moment of closure, it's also an opening of possibility. And so that sense of refusing the authority of any argument for origin or any claim to ultimate reality, whether it's the ultimate reality of, of human coexistence and the question of democracy or liberalism as, as a, a deep value around justice and, and humanity and humanism, he's always going to want to disrupt that because of the way those, when left uncontested, those claims about origin and end and closure are invariably authoritarian practices. The Derridian innovation is not that he resists authoritarian practices, right? That's something that, you know, critics of authoritarianism do. But I think what's so interesting about Derrida is that he gets to that not from the outside of the text, but from inside the text. And so in the case of Rousseau, who wants to give the story of the origin of language, and he can't give the story of the origin of language, we sort of, you know, it's a, it's a question I had in mind as we were talking, like who's to blame, so to speak, right? It's not really a blame question, but who's to blame for a failed uh, a, a failed account of the origin of language. It's not Derrida who critiqued it from the outside. It's the one who makes the argument is the one who's to blame for its failure. Blame in quote marks, right? But the one to blame for the failure is the one who makes the argument because they're the ones who in making an argument for a pure origin of some kind, right? A pure principle or an end or closure of something. They are the ones who let the supplement in the door. And when they let the supplement in the door, that supplement disrupts and corrupts everything. And nothing is the same after that. A lot of people asked, you know, when, when Derrida was alive and when his, in the 80s and 90s, when his thought had really taken over so much critical theory, philosophy, uh, literary criticism, you know, what's the end game of deconstruction? You know, what does it ultimately want us to do? What does it ultimately want us to get from the world? What are we sp supposed to take away from deconstruction? What does deconstruction make possible? And I really think that's such a tough question on the one hand because 
It's a critical practice. It's about dismantling authoritarian claims, right? However banal the claims may seem, however liberatory the claims may seem. He wants to dismantle that because every closure, again, is an opening. And he's opening up through the supplement that's already in the text, opening up possibilities exactly at the moment of closure in the text. But that mo moment of opening up possibilities, you know, Derrida shies away from anything programmatic about that. I like that. I think it's important to resist because an opening to possibility is an opening to a future, a thing that isn't known. But what I think the ultimate value of deconstruction is and why it's important and why it's enduringly important as a readerly practice is that it opens up possibilities, not in the name of a counter-principle, a counter-reality, a counter-origin story, right? Which is that, that's the war of, 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 of competing visions. Deconstruction is never a war of competing visions. I like that the lesson of deconstruction is this sort of immense humility in front of the task of articulating reality, of articulating meaning, of articulating value, of articulating what it means to belong together in a community, what it means to encounter a stranger, that all of these things have levels of, 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 of contradiction that don't get resolved and actually structure the event itself, and that when we make claims, we understand that we invoke those supplements that undo our own claims. And for me, that sense of a humility before the very task of theorizing, before the very task of writing and claim making, that humility for me is a foundation for a different kind of ethics, a different kind of politics, a different kind of reading practice for sure. That's what deconstruction always was. But I also really think of taken very seriously fundamentally changes how we are as writers and the kinds of worlds we try to bring into being through that writing, through that thinking, through that speaking. <laughs>